you know, we really tried to find a, a way to take topics that we knew were divisive, but to find these common denominators that give us an access point. And oftentimes people are engaging with the product or reading an article and they don't quite know that they even need the medicine that sits within within these conversations that are being provoked. And so I think beyond anything, what's what's really helped us because we're still a very small company is is the feeling that people walk away with, whether it's uh, maybe a scary growth feeling that they're not sure of yet, but they're curious about, or a very nourishing connection feeling right off the bat. Most people walk away with something worth worth sharing and worth exploring more on their own or, or with others. You're listening to WERALP, Arlington, Virginia, 96.7 FM, streaming online at WERA.FM. Coming to you from Arlington Independent Media, I'm your host, Lynn Wharton, and this is Choose to be Curious. Welcome. This is a show all about curiosity. We talk about research and theory, but mostly it's conversations about how curiosity shows up in work and life. So I think a lot about questions. Some recent family stuff has gotten me thinking about how we ask what we ask, when we ask it, why, and how much we're really thinking about the person on the other end of our inquiry. So when I came across Michael Tennant, former ad exec and founder of the Curiosity Lab and creator of the Actually Curious card deck, he definitely had my attention. Michael was inspired by a 2015 viral New York Times article called The 36 Questions That Lead to Love and the research of Dr. Arthur Ahrens and his team at SUNY Stony Brook, who investigate crisis mitigation, high-level negotiations, and trust building. Michael and his collaborators met with Dr. Ahrens and others to figure out how to gamify getting to know other people, to build empathy and connection to build community? Well, the work is deeply personal. You know, I come from a Jamaican immigrant family. My parents immigrated here in the 70s. They, between the two of them, have uh, at most like a high school education. They definitely punched above their pedigree, if you will. Um, in many ways, I'm very privileged to have grown up with two, both of my parents. All my life, they're still alive. They're in their 70s. But we grew up in in Bedside, Brooklyn. Now it's it's uh, it's kind of posh. It's kind of in vogue to live there. But when I lived there, it was in the middle of the crack epidemic. And uh, when I was a kid, I grew up curious enough and with enough access and inspiration from my parents to look beyond the ten blocks that I was in. But the truth was, is I did most of that from a home. I didn't leave because it was too dangerous. So the opportunities that I've had to go to boarding school, to go to you know college on scholarship, to get a job working at MTV and to continue journeying through media and advertising, they weren't met without, without challenges, challenges that for some reason, I, my personal experience, maybe being the last, the last of four boys, I'm the baby in the family, I'm very much always kind of like looking and tracking at who, who, who's, who's not happy right now. 
for other reasons as well, you know, and maybe that helped protect me in, in school environments. So the reason I share that is oftentimes when I come to conflict, I usually come to conflict with the perspective that I want to resolve it, which is not always good, but I want to come to some place of harmony. And as such, I always found myself a little bit more willing to, to present a, or listen to, listen to with curiosity, the other person's argument, even if I disagreed, because at the end of the day, my goal wasn't necessarily like, yeah, you know, our egos always come up and maybe some arguments mean more than others and you want to win. But most often it was to, to be connected. So that really was the insight that went into the original Actually Curious game was some people are just more willing to say, hey, maybe I might be wrong. And there are others. And, you know, I've been on the bruising, the bruising receiving end of, of uh some folks and, and maybe a system that is this archetype, but it's like, I'm right. I don't accept, I don't accept the, the shame or the fear or the, the, the sadness that might come with being wrong. Uh, even if there's an inkling of that here, we shut that down. And so, you know, it's a posture of like kind of win at all costs. So how could we potentially gamify folks to practice the opposite, to practice surrendering the win, surrendering the, the ego, and just just getting curious, but doing it at a level that's safe for you and safe for whomever you're, you're engaging with. We, we did start with a, a base reference of the 36 questions that lead to love, but we stripped the romantic context out of it. And we were really particular because even though I would say these questions tend to be a little bit more comfortable for folks who are liberal leaning. We really try to take any bias out of the questions. These are just topics that we believe uh, we should be examining. But then the 36 questions didn't really get into issues so much as, uh, as more, I guess, get to know you questions, but I feel like that, that is not doing it justice. But um, not issues like diversity, the issues that really matter to us. And you said when we developed the question, we were surrounded by a team of five college aged interns. And really, at that point, having come up working for brands like MTV and Vice, like I've learned when to surrender to the youth. And even though I was in my early 30s uh, or yeah, early 30s at that point, I was I knew I wanted to hear what they wanted to talk about. So the issues that really come up were coming from college sophomores and juniors, which also helps us to, to have this kind of timeless effect because we really tested it across generations. We brought in our, once we, we had the base questions or we had more than the 52 that ended up in the deck, we brought them back to Dr. Arthur Aarons. We brought them out to our coaches, our mentors, to other subject matter experts in, in, uh, in the fields of, DE&I and trust building relationships. The cards have various levels of intimacy, allowing players to ease into conversations or just jump in at the deep end. <laughs> well, I've learned that most people, well, depending on the person, whether they're like a rule follower or a rule breaker, they'll just, you know, if they're a rule follower, then they'll they'll go through and they'll read the, the deck as intended, the instructions and, and start and level up and um, and I've seen some people actually, you know, the way we instruct it is that you just do one, at least one question and then you, you vote as the group. 
And if you're ready, then you level up. But you have to do one from the lighter level before you level up. That's how we instruct it. Some folks will go through every single card in the blue level, then up to the to the green. But the rule breakers or the the rule, you know, which I kind of count myself in that category, so I would understand, will just open the deck and and uh and just and just pull or you know they'll just. I guess just start at whatever level feels right to them. Or some people will just flip through and answer the question that feels most interesting to them. Among the many things I admire about Michael's effort is the toggle between big social vision and the very intimate moments that make up that bigger picture. Mental health has always been a very, uh, not always as overt, but with Mental Health Awareness Month coming up, um, part of my journey into investing fully into this deck was how it uh, was rooted in being a a essentially a talk therapy tool um, and gamifying that. So, yeah, the questions are I, the key thing I want you to take away is is community. Our community developed, community sourced, community vetted. But then we go through a process of like, how do we make these questions interesting and timeless and to cut across demographics? Being a Black man, uh, my personal investment fully into this journey came after the loss of my brothers, two older brothers in 2019. Um, And while they had various health ailments that contributed to their death, my mind sort of got fixated on how hard they had to work, how little permission they had to express what they were going through to anyone and and how their bodies took that toll. Yeah, when I slow down into that, like I just think about going out onto the road and asking strangers to hear my story and also confronting people who I had maybe difficult past narratives that I was ready radically to let go of. But along the way, strangers, people who I hadn't spoken to in years, people who I'd spoken to maybe just a few times in high school were opening up. And you could see that you could see, like I would notice because now I'm a lot more attuned to what's happening to myself and to others. I would notice like hair rising or like the tightness of skin. And I think these are the sort of the signs that, um, that school or book or can't teach or hasn't been teaching that we're meaning to open folks up to, you know, along my journey, and this is not that long ago, you know, if we rewind to April of 2019, I was, I was still very much struggling with addiction. Um, It all started to unravel back then. Uh, That's when my original business partner with Curiosity Lab uh, and I, who who was also my romantic partner, we split. And then three months after that, Chris died. And then three months after that, my brother Darren died. So 2019 was quite a few wallops happened that year. But they they brought with them uh, the catalyst to put routine and better coping mechanisms more firmly in place for me, because I just didn't learn that growing up. And I think that's just to just dot this at the end, 
that's what we are meaning to do with this empathy movement is we don't, I don't believe, we don't believe that uh, we've appropriately socialized what it looks like to be aware, aware of yourself and to have the tools to sit with the difficult parts and then to, uh, to heal. If you have it, great. And, and, and I, and I love you. And I, I hope that you have the, the, what, what I'm, I speak of these days as emotional prosperity, that it's overflowing, that you can now teach and you can share and you can hold space for those who don't have that, that, that those practices. Um, so, but, but to heal when my brother Chris died, I, you know, what I didn't realize then is how much, how much my brothers, and I'm still working through this. I, I'm in a men's group. I was already in a men's group when this was happening and that was critical to my, to my healing. And last night, my statement was I'm the baby in the family. My work statement at the end was the baby is scared to die. And that what that means to me is, is I'm sometimes let afraid to let go of that role in my family. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, But I just want you to take a moment because the thing that, really struck me in what you just said was the importance of holding space as a curiosity practice. And um, I think we do that in a lot of different ways, but one of them is also to just allow ourselves a pause. Yeah. You know, there's always this thing that I've been my my curiosity right now that I'm continuing to to work on or the idea that I'm continuing to play with is it's like safety for spaciousness mm. it's like our life is this even this idea the baby is scared to die like it, I'd forgotten I'd forgotten that my mother told me that I was born. I don't know what the medical term is, but what the with the cord around my around my neck. Oh wow! I'd forgotten that narrative, mm-hmm. but I do remember for a time that there was actually a time where I'd say, "Hey, I'm Michael," and like if I had gotten into explaining about myself, I'd say I survived that. I would, I'd, I'd tell people that, even though I knew that as a kid. So at that point, I had awareness of uh, the finiteness of of life, even though not fully, but it was like, oh, there was something there that I knew. And I think many of us, whether we realize it or not, are are kind of like racing against some sort of clock, whether it's like, it's a success clock, it's a perception clock. And today, like, as I was like, oh, there's so much I want to share with you. (laughs) I'm racing against like a recording clock. So I really appreciate you um, offering that space to slow down. So it's a multi-front curiosity and empathy effort, inward as well as outward, cards, boot camps, even a book. Around this time last year, I started realizing how the workshops, how physically taxing the workshops were and that I wouldn't be able to do them at volume. And I had to start ideating ways to get the tools that we're introducing out. And I, I told myself I would be 
publishing a book on this. And December, I got an offer, and this month it was signed. So the cards are, I would say, almost like you don't need to know anything about empathy to go and have questions. And because of the way they're engineered, like for example, the happy hour edition are rooted in topics that naturally make us happy, or in letting go of the narratives that perpetuate our sadness. It doesn't say that anywhere, but just by revisiting, that's the experience. So in a way it's meant to be like, hey, how could we make these sometimes like really complex topics, maybe fear inducing top growth, healing, the first steps in it can be really scary for someone who's a bit distant from it. So how could we do that where they don't even have to be afraid of anything? They're just doing a natural thing. But on the other side of that is the workshops, which talk about a five phases of empathy, which talks about awareness, emotional awareness that gets down to a physiological level or somatic awareness, the experience of emotions being present in our bodies first, all the way out to what would it look like if we're surrendering to this overly thought way and surrendering to this gut and heart orientation. We start to attract. I heard an interview that you gave sometime recently where, you know, they were calling you an empathy expert and you're like, yeah, I'm not really comfortable with that. I, I think of myself as, you know, more of a, a, a student of it, you know, kind of perpetually learning. And I, and that for me really resonated because I think we're all sort of in a perpetual state of learning <laughs> on this. And the, and the cards is one way of doing that, right? It's a, it's a nice tool for people to kind of right size how they build that muscle. Like you can never be too strong in this muscle, but these are sort of ways of building and, and, and going there. The cards are intimate communities, building one little intimate community at a time. And, you know, a penny here, a penny there, pretty soon you're talking about billions of dollars, right? So those little communities matter. But I, I hear a larger vision for this massive community. What does that, what does that mean for you? What does that look like? Well, in its most um, high level vision, it is, it is lowering the bar of what it means for you, I, our peers to feel confident calling themselves, quote unquote, an empathy expert. What I mean by that is if you are doing the work on yourself, you are proactively looking at ways of deepening your healing and you're holding space for others, then, then we're in the right ballpark. You're, you're, you can listen. Then you're in the ballpark, right? You're on your way. And then the other is increasing access to tools and knowledge to do that safely, venture more into that safely and to feel confident. And so if we could do the same, the two at the same time, and in a way, just getting the cards out into the world does that. When we released the book, The 30 Days of Empathy, working title, it's very early stages, right? Like, I don't even know if I should say that, but um, 
when we release the book, then folks will have a routine that they can they can do. And within it are, are routines that they can adapt. So maybe they don't do all of it, but maybe two or three things stick out for that first reading. And you're already on a way to a mindfulness, a self-awareness and an empathy practice. Nice. Nice. I love that. I love that reframe that we become experts simply in the practice, right? And that we keep we keep practicing. Maybe we add a few more of those elements in. Maybe we deepen the practice, but it all matters. And I guess one thing I want to I want to make sure because this is one thing I've learned, and it's it's also a a a plea out to the audience in a way. When times are difficult, you have more agency and more urgency to implement these tools and do this work. And if you're going to have empathy for the world and how priorities shift, then you just have to be fine with that. And, and it is. But the fact is, is the type of agency that we saw in the middle of 2020 and going into 2021, early 2021 with, with the disaster that happened then, which I won't even speak into any more than that, there was more agency. And so we've had to make a pivot, but it's an important pivot in, in, because it was always there at the core of this work. Empathy is outward. This is true. It is about seeing the other person on a deeper level and being able to hold space for them, as you said, Lynn. But more than anything, it's about having a deeper understanding of yourself, especially if you're a high empathy person, then you need tools to know when you need to tap out, when you need to say no, when you need to put up boundaries. Oftentimes, high empathy people are, you know, what people say are, are like, what, what's the word, like people, people pleasing or, or, or what have you. These are all fine if this is your leaning. But if you aren't aware of it and you aren't playing with the discomfort of, of trying that no when it's important, knowing when that no is in your integrity, maybe you're a le- yes-leaning person. That's fine. But in order to be able to do that when it matters the most, then empathy helps you show up then because it helps you know when you need to take space for you. It's kind of funny to have taken myself mostly out of this conversation. It is so much about having conversations, but sometimes, oftentimes, the best conversations are more about listening than talking. And I wanted you to join me in just listening to Michael, but I couldn't let him get away without an analogy. Well, before I let you go, are you game for my big jar of wannabe analogies? Yeah, I'm excited. We're going to hold space for this. Okay, so this is my literal big jar. In it, there are slips of paper with random words on them. I'm going to take out three, one for you, one for me, and one for the audience. And we're going to make an analogy to curiosity with whatever is on these slips of paper. Okay, so... Will you model it for for me? I sure will. Okay. So uh, yours is shampoo. How is curiosity like shampoo? And mine is truck. So how is curiosity like a truck? Um, I'm going to say that curiosity is like a truck because um, it's big. It's powerful. It can move things. Um, It can be ungainly. 
but uh, I'm, as we learned in the last couple of years, you know, without trucks, stuff doesn't happen. Um, and I think that's true with curiosity. Without curiosity, stuff doesn't happen. So how is curiosity like shampoo? I'd say, I'm going to say I, I had something hop into my mind and then I wanted to be really present for your share. So, but I'll share that one first and then see where it goes. Curiosity is like shampoo because like the way it works is you, you can always, you always go to it when you need it. It has this almost like therapeutic loop-like instructions and, and look at a shampoo <laughs> bottle, look at a shampoo bottle and read the instructions. It says something like apply, rinse, repeat uh -huh. as necessary. And you can say that about curiosity. And in that sense, curiosity can be really cleansing. Um, I think judgment, which is the opposite of curiosity, is really heavy and mucky. Whereas curiosity is like shampoo. When you go in with curiosity, you leave light, you leave feeling fresh. Nice. It's also packaged by CPG brands. <laughs> <laughs> like Procter & Gamble. Not a sponsor. <laughs> I love it. An audience, yours is rain. How is curiosity like rain? Let me know. Facebook, Twitter, hashtag analogy. Well, Michael, thank you. Thank you for this. Thank you for the work that you're doing. This has really been lovely. Yeah, this is a lot of fun. Thank you for this journey into curiosity. You've been listening to WERA 96.7 FM. Find us online at WERA.FM. You can dig into all my previous episodes on my website, choosetobecurious.com. I hope you follow me there and on social media. Don't forget to send us your rain analogy, Facebook, Twitter, hashtag analogy. Many thanks to my guest, Michael Tennant. Check out Curiosity Lab and Actually Curious. Links on my website. Thanks, too, to Sean Ballack for our theme music. And this is Up, 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 and Over by The Balloonists via Blue Dot Sessions. I hope you'll join us again next time. Until then, choose to be curious. Funding for Choose to be Curious on WERA 96.7 FM is provided in part by the Center for Parents and Teens, where families are strengthened through a connection built through positive communication, mutual understanding, and realistic expectations of one another. For more information, visit www.centerforparentsandteens.com. Choose to be Curious is sponsored in part by realtor Christine Hopkins. Curious about real estate? Christine works with clients from around the world using her time and knowledge to build community. As she likes to say, community engagement has always been my big why. Working in real estate has helped me express that. What makes you part of a community more than living there? For more information, visit facebook.com slash Nova House Hunter.